For days, a shroud of thick smoke has lingered over some of Australia's major cities. Sydney copped it twice in one week, while the Gold Coast and Adelaide also suffered. In Victoria, it wasn't smoke, but the threat of thunderstorm asthma. We respectfully acknowledge that Hypecast is recorded on traditional Aboriginal lands, which have been sustained for thousands of years. We honour their ongoing connection to these lands and seek to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians. Recent heatwaves, bushfires, floods and coastal erosion have exposed the depth of Australian households' vulnerability to climate change. Increasingly, the health impacts of these major events, as well as the more subtle, cumulative impacts of our changing climate, are becoming apparent. Today I sit down with Tim Reid, a medical practitioner and the Greens MP for Brunswick, and Kate Nicolasso, General Manager of Sustainability at HIPV Hype, to discuss the intimate connection between climate change and public health. Hi, Tim. We'd love to start by hearing a little bit about your journey as a medical practitioner and towards becoming a member for Parliament and what role you actually see doctors playing in progressing political action on climate. It was pretty sudden. I was a doctor until late 2018 and then took a few weeks off to campaign for the Greens for Brunswick. And the result was so close that we didn't know on election night. And so I was back at work in the clinic trying not to refresh the computer screen too often. And it took uh, a few days before we worked out that I'd won the seat and had to figure out how to finish up as a doctor and become an MP. On your um, website, you talk about the shift from getting mad to, to getting elected. What was it that sort of drove you to, to run for the seat of Brunswick? More than anything, it was climate change. And I, I left out the bit, of course, where I was campaigning for the Greens during the evenings and weekends for, for some years. It was climate change that drove me to join the Greens more than a decade ago. And that's what's really motivated me to, to keep doing this. I think that the topic you've chosen today about the, the public health aspects of climate change is something that we're still only beginning to come to grips with. There's an interesting book by Paddy Mallon that explores this in some detail, and we're starting to appreciate that, in fact, there are more people dying as a result of heat waves than is actually recorded in the literature, for just for one example. And I feel like the interactions between public health and climate are still being explored. I think that's really interesting and certainly something we're seeing reflected in our work where we're increasingly talking to health organisations, community health organisations in particular, about what role they can play in, in climate action. And I guess in your experience as, as, a, as a doctor, what, I guess what advice you would potentially give to health professionals in particular who are, who are really concerned and starting to see this issue emerge in their communities? So one of the things I've been looking at is air pollution. I think that air pollution is important because where most of us live in cities or in areas where we're breathing emissions from exhaust pipes or power stations or factories, but you're rarely aware of it. And as health professionals, when we're seeing people with asthma and emphysema and other respiratory disease, we're always alert to viruses and other triggers, 
But I think we tend to forget about the stuff that we've just grown used to in our urbanized lives. And there's a growing body of literature and a very persuasive body of literature now that things like diesels and and coal-fired power stations in particular emitting microparticles, the sort of stuff that we wore masks for during those fires uh, a year or so ago, actually an important contributor to the disease that's coming into our clinics. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting reflection. We saw a re- in December 2019, there was a real influx of local governments declaring climate emergencies, primarily in response to the community pressures from people who are experiencing the bushfire smoke and understanding the sort of health impacts. And I guess just to sort of explore a little bit further, how do we kind of continue to keep up the, the energy and the awareness within the public about the long-term impacts of these things when we, when we go through those periods of extreme, you know, stress like like bushfire smoke but also then some potentially getting d- distracted by something like the COVID pandemic how do we maintain the the need to kind of continue to talk about climate and the nexus with public health yeah so there's no shortage of things that keep this stuff on the front page these days for example if we if you can go back to January 2020 it was I think when when Melbourne was briefly shrouded in smoke and people were worried about you know, whether they should go outside or not. I started reading about m- microparticles in the air, sometimes referred to as PM10 and PM2.5, based on the size of these particles. The smaller ones, the PM2.5, are absorbed into the bloodstream. They seem to make blood more likely to clot and to contribute to heart disease and stroke. So it's not just respiratory disease, not just lung disease, but it's a whole range of things. And this kind of pollution has been referred to as the new smoking. And, and that exposure in particular to diesel fumes uh, may well be driving a lot of the disease we're seeing. Why is that relevant today? It's relevant today because every day there's an article in the paper about electric vehicle policy. And that is topical and really important. So the public health implications of trying to get rid of of the most polluting vehicles from our streets and replace them with clean vehicles is something that that we should be talking more about. Absolutely. Do you think there's a role to to look at the sort of economic analysis of that as well? Because obviously the preventative health, the benefits that, you know, from preventing those illnesses in the first place are quite considerable. And I confess I haven't gone looking for those data, but it should be fairly easy to find, particularly because the if, if you live in Melbourne, the biggest source of microparticle pollution and other toxic air pollution is probably vehicle exhaust. We're also, I should point out, exposed to air pollution from the Latrobe Valley power stations, which does make it as far as Melbourne, which is uh, something shocking to consider, and northern Tasmania even. I think you're right, there's, and there's probably there's still a really big role for ongoing public awareness of, of how big those impacts actually are. I think you're right, that, that idea that we've kind of gotten used to it or, or that we potentially, particularly with Latrobe Valley, don't necessarily think that it is coming into our, into our streets in Melbourne. It's a really interesting challenge. One, thinking about climate change and, and health, the, there's a sort of also a growing awareness of a climate anxiety and, and the sort of mental impacts that people are experiencing because of ecological grief and those sorts of things, particularly within young people. Is that something that you've sort of been looking at and considering? The, it, it seems to me that we're still at the stage where 
probably the best thing, the best treatment for climate anxiety is to point out to people that it's not hopeless. There are things we can do. So a study came out in the last few days showing, for example, that we've got some great opportunities to reduce methane production. And methane is one of those really potent greenhouse gases, more potent than CO2, but it's kind of short-lived in the atmosphere. And if we can cut methane production, then we will actually see some climate benefits potentially in our lifetime. And so the biggest source of methane, or the biggest two sources, are cattle and sheep, but also what we call natural gas, which is just a euphemism for fossil methane. Obviously, climate action has a long history of politicisation in Australia. Do, do you see public health being a, potentially a lens that we can use in, in terms of sort of removing some of the political tension that sits around the debate on action and shifting us towards stronger, more effective climate action? We've just had 12 months of governments saying, shut up, this is about health, and, and using health as a kind of sacred password to, to get sweeping political change. And, and necessarily so in the circumstances. I would argue that these circumstances are just as important, uh, if not more. And so, yes, it's a very useful frame. It shouldn't be the only frame, but it's, it's proven it's worth politically, and I think we should keep using it. We were talking about natural gas and methane, and it appalls me that every day new houses are being hooked up to natural gas. And it's like installing a very small fossil fuel power station in your home. Why would you do that? And we've got the technology now to run our houses entirely on electricity, which is something that we should at least be encouraging for new builds, and if not, starting to retrofit it. Absolutely, that's something we're certainly very passionate about here at Hip V Hype. All of our housing is zero carbon, all electric homes, and we're so, certainly starting to look at how we can actually build solutions to, to do that retrofitting piece of work, a lot of it in partnership with the local governments that we look at. I just, I, I guess, yeah, just picking up on that nexus, I think, between housing and health and thinking about the public health lens for climate change, but obviously housing and the idea that, you know, people obviously need to be safe in their homes, not only looking at removing gas from homes, but, you know, the issues around thermal comfort that we've got for people during periods of extreme weather, particularly heat, but eventually, you know, increasingly cold snaps in Melbourne as well, where people can't afford to heat their homes. I guess maybe just a little bit of commentary from you around how you see that sort of playing out in a political context? A lot of our housing was built with the idea of cheap fossil fuels and just, you know, turn on the heating or the air con to correct for any any deficiencies in the construction. We're now realising that whatever we do, heating and cooling are going to be more expensive. And so things like insulation and thermally efficient design are actually going to be necessary to keep people alive and there's a little bit of it's creeping into political discourse a little bit but I think there's a lot more to be made of this point yet. Do you see that something that's a discussion that will be happening with your local constituents within the seat of Brunswick is that something people care about and want to want to talk about more? We sent a postcard around to everyone last year actually talking about what you can do to get off gas and both at a systemic and national level but also in in your own homes and there was there was a lot of interest in that and to their credit the state government has announced energy efficiency upgrade funding in the last state budget and we need a lot more than that but and a lot more of it but uh, there's plenty of budgets to come 
<laughs> Absolutely. And as we were sort of talking about before, that idea that the investment being made up front ultimately potentially ends in, a, in considerable savings for the entire community down, down the track. There's some really interesting research being done through the Healthy Homes Program, which is funded through the Victorian government, which is looking at the economic impacts or, or benefits from energy efficiency upgrades and thermal comfort upgrades in homes of people on a low income who have a chronic illness as well and the avoided hospital admissions and those sorts of things. These are the conversations that would be great to be having more in the in the public domain, sort of taking it out of the very specialised sectors out into the general community because to, to, I guess, yeah, have that conversation more broadly. It's definitely not getting the media it should. And I was quite surprised to only learn recently that just burning gas on your stove at home is not as clean as it looks or is made out to be. The, some of the chemical byproducts from you know, making my morning coffee on a gas flame are, you know, things you really wouldn't want to be breathing all your life. So I, I'm beginning to think that's something we need to be making more of, you know, without being alarmist. But if people really knew what we were burning, we wouldn't be calling it natural gas. Going back, there was some research that was done by Sustainability Victoria early in 2020, actually it was released, that looked at health workers being one of the most trusted sources of advice for people around a whole multitude of issues, but also climate climate change and sustainability actually being being one of those, but health workers didn't necessarily feel equipped to, to have those conversations. A- any comments around that, that idea around us upskilling people who are having that interaction with the community on a daily basis who are a trusted source of advice? on on having those conversations with the community? That's a really interesting question. I'm a member of Doctors for the Environment Australia and that crew and members also of the Climate and Health Alliance, another useful organisation, are generally very well skilled in talking about this, but that's not most health workers. And the idea that this is something, that this is a necessary skill for health workers is a good one. I think one of the things that's concerned me is that quite a lot of the medications we prescribe actually reduce people's ability to adapt to heat and to respond to heat. Things like diuretics and beta blockers, quite a lot of the psychiatric medications in particular impair your response to heat. I'm worried, and I haven't seen any data for this, but I'm worried that this might even um, increase mortality during heat waves. I think this is something that not just needs research, but also I'd like to see patients on these medications being given uh, a hot day plan. Do you reduce your dose? Do you drink more water? Whatever other interventions might be necessary to keep them alive for the day. But that's something that health workers really need to start learning and teaching each other about. I think that sounds like a really a really good plan and a good good idea and a good program to potentially roll out to support people who are vulnerable within our community. So that that's the other element. We've got sort of really major gen- general public health issues like pollution and you know gas in homes and those sorts of things. And then we've got very specific subsets of, of issues as well. So obviously thinking about extreme heat and the nexus of that with um, homelessness is another really critical issue in Melbourne and a growing problem in Melbourne at the moment. You're seeing anything kind of emerge for a a bit of hope for us, I guess, in that space around homelessness? Well, to their credit again, the government's announced a big spend on social housing. We are very keen to see that that money actually gets spent and fairly quickly and isn't simply re-announced at regular intervals, but the it, it's definitely a good start and so we're enthusiastic to see what happens there. But bearing in mind that we have a public housing waiting list of at least 100,000 people at last count, 
the amount of money offered so far won't make a huge dent in that, so we're going to need to continue activism on that front. Absolutely. And I guess look at how uh, the public, uh, the private sector can actually get on board with, with some of that work as well. Yeah, and I think inclusionary zoning where developments are required to incorporate a, a percentage of public or social housing is one way that that can help. We're expecting the Victorian government to release their emissions reduction or their interim emissions reduction targets shortly. They've been delayed due to, to COVID. I don't know if you have any insight into that or, or some reflection on what you're looking, hoping to see as part of our movement on climate action. I'm just reflecting back on a report put out by Greg Combay and others over a year ago, which was to inform the government about the kind of parameters for their their interim and their 2030 targets. And knowing what we know now, I feel as though the range recommended in that report was too low. And we've now seen work from the Climate Council essentially saying that we need a 75% reduction in emissions by 2030 to stand any chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. I feel as though that would be a minimum target that we need to hear from the state government. Anything less than that would suggest that they're really giving up on 1.5 degrees. Do you feel like what's been happening at an international level in terms of the UK and the US sort of setting some pretty ambitious targets will potentially hopefully create a platform for that for the Victorian government? I I really think it will. I, I hope it does, certainly. I guess just an opportunity for some, you know, advice for people wanting to get more, a bit more involved in this idea around advocacy for the public health, you know, understanding the public health impacts of climate change and what they can do about it, if you've got any words of wisdom. If you're a health worker, then Climate and Health Alliance or Doctors for the Environment Australia are both worth getting involved in. If for bigger picture stuff and in the end the bigger picture is important that we just really need to be reducing all sources of emissions for their own sake uh, rather than for any other reason and 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 for the sake of global warming and so I think local climate action is really important and so most regions have their own little climate action groups so climate action moorland Darabin Climate Action Now. Check out those organisations and and give them a boost. Thanks very much for your time, Tim. Just in, in wrapping up, it'd be really wonderful just to hear a summary from you. We've heard some really great ideas during the conversation about the sort of policy responses that we could see to actually uh, acknowledge and act on the public health impacts of climate change. But if you'd love to just give us, love, it'd be great if you could just give us a little recap of those ideas. Sure, Kate. If we, if we want to make community both better adapted to global heating and also contributing less and ultimately zero to it, then we need energy-efficient housing. That means we don't have to create emissions by heating and cooling it and, and that protects us from the extremes of temperature. We need to stop burning fossil fuels in our own homes, so that means not connecting gas up to homes and trying to get as many of us off gas as quickly as possible. We also need, I think to make some progress in public health and health workers need to really increase both their activism in this space but also in terms of communicating to patients about how to prepare for heat waves. But I also think that we we need to uh, look at air pollution directly and get our polluting vehicles off our streets and try and facilitate rather than obstruct the obvious electric vehicle revolution that, that we're just seeing the beginning of. 
So those are all some things I'd like to see. I also think that we, we can't get away from the, the really big picture stuff, which is that, you know, we're still burning 40 million tonnes of brown coal a year in Victoria, and, and we've got to stop that immediately, if not sooner. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks very much for joining us, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hypecast. If you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review.